pamphlet that you would have gotten when you came in, uh, when we were reading the first passage, first Thess Thessalonians, chapter uh, 4, 1 to 8. As for other mothers, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you, in the Lord Jesus, to do this more and more. Do you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus? It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is honor holy and honourable not in passionate lust, like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Well, hello everyone. Uh, my name's Ollie, if I haven't met you, and really privileged to be with you tonight to open God's Word as we, as we want to hear from Him. So, would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your Word, uh, that you speak to us. And Lord, I pray that as we tackle a difficult subject uh, with many questions and uh, lots of uh, awkwardness and uncomfortableness and uh, we just ask, Lord, for your, uh, your great um, guidance and understanding. And above all, Lord, I pray that above our questions, we would know you and we would know who you are and who you've called us to be. So, Lord, please help us to uh, love you and enjoy you tonight as you make yourself known. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been asking the question over the last four weeks. We're in the middle of a series called, Does God Care Who I Sleep With? Essentially, what we've been trying to do is ask the question, how does our faith, if you're a Christian, relate to our sexuality? How do those two connect? Uh, let me tell you, there's been two things that have motivated this series. The kind of, why are we doing this? The first is that the biggest belief blocker to young people believing in Jesus in Australia is a Christian sexual ethic. Maybe you've experienced this. You start a new job, your colleagues find out you go to church, and straight away they assume you're a homophobe. Does that happen to you? And do we have a compelling story to live by? And is it good? Uh, secondly, in my experience as a leader and as a pastor, one of the greatest challenges to faith for those who do call themselves Christians is the shame of sexual sin. For many of us, it, it feels like an unwinnable battle. It's hard avoiding pornography, let alone most TV and films. It's hard when you're dating to resist your body's urge to experience pleasure with another person. It's hard to reconcile God's compassion with the Bible's stance on sexuality. And in some sense, it's true that churches talk about it a lot. Some of you may feel like it's just rinse and repeat every year and an opportunity for the pastor to do some purity bashing. But in another sense, given what I've just said about that it's a major blocker to people believing, an 
and a major cause of shame and doubt. Maybe, in fact, we aren't equipped enough to respond to our current cultural moment. But for no other reason. It's worth talking about because the Bible says it's worth talking about. So today I want to take you to the book of 1 Thessalonians uh, and teach you a passage of scripture that helpfully uh, walks through this. You see, Paul, he's the writer of this letter, he loved the Thessalonian church. Uh, These guys that were converted out of a really promiscuous Greco-Roman culture, and these guys took on faith with great conviction. Paul, he regrettably gets kicked out of Thessalonica, Thessalonica, where he's spending his time in this city, uh, because he's preaching about Jesus. They give him the boot, and so later he writes this letter back to them. And he tells them how much he loves them. The first three chapters are about him encouraging them with a challenge to keep growing in their faith. Sorry, beg your pardon. First three chapters, celebrating their faithfulness, and the last two chapters, challenging them them to grow. Challenging them to grow in their faith and their character. So what I want us to see today as we close out this series, to answer the question, does God care who I sleep with? I want to tell you that God cares more about who you are becoming. God cares more about who you are becoming. It's a question of formation, formation of character. So the first week we looked at what is sex for in context of our culture's understanding of identity compared to our identity given to us by God. Tonight I want to talk about why would we ever restrict sexuality? Why would we ever restrict our sexuality? A question of boundaries and self-control, especially in light of our culture's perception of Christians and our own struggle with temptation. And what we'll see again, God cares more about who you are becoming. And so keep your Bible, if you've got one, or that little pamphlet with you to this passage open with you, because I want to walk through it verse by verse. Uh, As I said before, it's worth talking about because the Bible seems to think so. Uh, So read along with me, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. In other words, Paul's already given this message to them before. It's not new information. Same for us, same for us. Many of you guys have already heard this kind of message before. And Paul says, many of you are already doing it. You're living it. They're living lives pleasing to God. And I could say the same thing about you guys. I'm always encouraged by your character and your lives that are pleasing to God. Nevertheless, our desire must be always to keep living lives that honor God. I want to tell you something I've been saying to you guys all year, and I'll keep saying it. If you put your trust in Jesus, you've been brought into relationship with God, completely through the work of Jesus, nothing of your own. He has washed you clean of all your sin that separates you from God. He has filled you with His Spirit, and He delights in you. God delights in you. And now, in reality of that, Because we are in relationship with God, clothed in this new identity, we grow every day to be more like Jesus. Every day our desires change. We want to live in order to please 
and honour God. So we see the next part of this verse, Paul says to them, Now we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Paul asks and urges, and he does so upon the relationship of Jesus. Did you see that? In the Lord Jesus. It's all by Jesus, it's all for Jesus, it's all through Jesus, and it's all because of Jesus. He says, do this more and more. Do this more and more. They've heard it before. They've had this instruction before, but Paul, again, will ask and urge them, live lives that honour God. God cares about who you are becoming. God cares about your formation. He cares about how we live. He cares about what we do with our bodies, what we do with our thoughts, what we do with our words. And you know, maybe we can say, oh, well, Paul was speaking to the Thessalonians and their context was different. You know, Paul had a kind of regressive, conservative idea about sexuality and things have changed. You know, we can still be holy with the modern liberal sexual ethic. And this is where it's important that we actually frame our sexual ethic, not in what seems good or what feels right or my words, but the authority of Jesus. This is what we're basing it on, the basis of our sexual ethic. And I might just need to clarify there. When I say sexual ethic, I'm talking about an ethic is kind of a judgment of what's right and wrong or what's kind of good or not. Um, so Paul's authority for speaking about formation. And as we're going to see in a minute, about our sexual ethic comes from the authority of Jesus. You see, before accepting a biblical sexual ethic, we need to accept whether or not it's true that Jesus is the Son of God. If he's not, we can pack our bags and go home. But if he is, and he says much more radical things about our lives than simply our sexual expression, then the whole game is changed. This is the authority by whom we claim a sexual moral. The authority of Jesus as the Son of God, as Creator, as Sustainer, as our Redeemer, as our Lord. And if who He claims to be is true, then we can trust that He is good. Trust that He's full of compassion and trust that He will satisfy us beyond anything of this world, including any sexual fulfillment. I'm convinced that Jesus is Lord, that he is the author of life, that he is perfecter of all things, and that his resurrection, that he's risen from the dead, the testimony of witnesses for thousands of years have told me. He is the Lord. But what about you? Are you convinced that Jesus is your Lord? Isn't it expected that there's going to be parts of our lives where we're going to need to submit to him as our Lord? If Jesus agreed with everything that we believe and wanted to be true, see, what would be happening is we wouldn't be worshipping Jesus anymore. Rather, we'd be only worshipping ourselves and projecting it onto an idea. So this is where we need to begin as we talk about this. This is a message worth saying as we grow in holiness, we'll talk about that in a minute, to become people who honour God with our lives. And this message comes with the authority of Jesus' inspired words. And that's my hope, that I'm going to be faithful to him, to his truth. So we've done a bit of the groundwork. Uh, 
The question is left for us then, what is Paul's instruction? He said, I've left you this instruction. Uh, how should we live in a way that honours God? You see, we often ask questions like, uh, what is God's will for my life? You know, what should I do for a job? Who should I marry? Where should I live? And you know, you guys are being judged by your culture more and more by what you do, like externals, what you do, who you're associated with, how you portray yourselves on socials. Rarely do we ask the question at a deeper level about who we're becoming and what's shaping that. Do we ask the question enough, who am I becoming and what is shaping that? How am I being formed? So who are you becoming? Have you thought about that? The decisions you are making today are shaping the person that you're going to be. Who are you becoming? We can ask, does God care who I sleep with? But a better answer says God cares more about who we are becoming. So look with me, verse 3. It is God's will that you be sanctified. What does that word sanctified mean? I enjoyed looking this up this week. Uh, it means to become something special, to be set apart. Uh, that word there is actually the opposite of common. Uh, so I want you to imagine for a moment your Christmas decorations. It's not that far away now. Uh, has anyone counted? I don't know if you uh, It's close. Uh, but just imagine you've got out your box of Christmas decorations. Uh, you've collected them over the years, you know, your tinsel, your baubles, your snowballs, snow globes, whatever. <laughs> there is one ornament, though, one ornament in your box of Christmas de de decorations that's particularly special to you. So what you do with that, you set it aside, you set it apart, you put it on the mantelpiece, you clean it up. It's set apart. That's what holy means, to be set apart to be something special. And, that, and that's what God wants to do in us. And for sure, I want to say, Christians are justified and our sins are forgiven. Positionally, we are God's child and his heir and nothing can take that away. And yet God is still at work in us and we work together with him in this process of sanctification, to be sanctified. An ongoing process of being set apart more and more holy in the image of Jesus. And you know, many of us can hear the word holy and think boring. Maybe you've thought that. Man, it's just a buzzkill. That's not the picture. Rather, sanctified means living a compelling, beautiful, glorious, wonderful life. That's God's will for you. That you, yourself, your body, your mind, your soul are becoming more like Jesus in goodness and righteousness. This is the process of sanctification. God cares about who you are becoming. And it's something wonderful. Something awesome. Set apart. But what follows after this clause that Paul has is a long sentence describing in more detail what it looks like for us to be Sanctify. Uh, verses 3 to 6 is one big sentence uh, as Paul unpacks what he means by God's will for you to be sanctified. Uh, so let's unpack this uh, bit by bit. Uh, surprisingly, he starts with our sexuality. 
Uh, verse 3, it says, God's will that you be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Uh, it's worth pausing at this point and noticing the word sexual immorality. Uh, in the Greek, it actually is one word. Uh, it's simply porneia. Uh, which is a word where we actually get the word pornography from. Uh, but what that word means is referring to any sexual activity outside of the marriage covenant. And I'll unpack this in a minute. Uh, but I like the English translation here. I think it's helpful uh, because immorality implies a morality. Right? If there's immorality, it implies that there's a question of, of judgment, a, a, a judgment of something as good or as bad. The Bible places a judgment on sexual behaviour that is moral and that is immoral. In other words, what is right and what is wrong sexual practice. And, you know, this rubs up many people the wrong way. And many people have a criticism of Christianity for restricting sexual behaviour and making moral judgments about someone's sexual activity. But let me point something out. Every culture has a sexual ethic. In other words, every culture has a boundary of what is acceptable sexual practice and what is unacceptable sexual practice. We all put restrictions on sexual activity. That's not unique to Christianity. Every culture has a sexual morality. For example, in our culture, age is a boundary. Consent is a boundary. Fidelity, or, or kind of not... Not sleeping with someone who's not your boyfriend or girlfriend, you know, that kind of faithfulness is a boundary of acceptable sexual expression. An activity that defies these boundaries is considered immoral. So it's not just Christians who say that. See, what I, what I believe our culture fails to answer, however, is why boundaries to sexual behaviour should be where they are. See, every culture has a boundary of acceptable sexual activity, but struggles to explain convincingly and consistently why. But I believe what the story of God offers is a clear and compelling reason for why some sexual behaviour is moral and other behaviour is not. Which raises the question then, what is the Christian's restriction on sexual behaviour and why is it there? You're asking this question. Sexual immorality is defined as any sexual activity that is outside the context of a covenant marriage between a man and a woman. And I'd also, uh, I'd include in this definition a sexual activity that is in marriage, but that doesn't reflect exclusivity and self-giving. See, the Bible paints a picture of sex that is mutually fulfilling in marriage, other-centred and not abusive. I think that's important I clarify that. But why is this boundary where it is? Why is it there? Uh, I'd encourage you to listen again to our first message in this series uh, describing what is sex for, uh, but I want to summarise it as best as I can here. Uh, number one, we are made in God's image and we have an inherent dignity, including a sexual integrity. You see, we are more than just mammals with bonus bits and what we are doing is deeper than just an exchange of fluids. Our sexuality is powerful and fragile and given to us by God. But in the same sense, we are far more than our sexuality. 
We are fundamentally God's children and inherent with worth beyond what our sexual appeal is. And number two, why is it there? Sex is a part of the image of God, a reflection of exclusive, permanent, self-giving love in a marriage-promised covenant. That is actually a mirror that is fully experienced in our union with Jesus. And that's why sex outside the context of marriage, where two lives are promised to one another exclusively, permanently, self-sacrificially, when we take that out, is actually a cheapening and a distortion of what God has made it for. And that's why God is grieved over divorce. Because it distorts this image That's why God is grieved over marital abuse or abuse in any form. It's horrendous. And what I'm about to say is an unpopular view as well. It's also why the Bible describes homosexuality as outside the bounds of God's design. For two that are different, namely a man and a woman joining together, complementing each other with a capacity for new life in the diversity of a family with mother and father. And this is certainly unpopular, but I want to place it in the wider story of who God is and what sex is for and who we are fundamentally. You see, we need to remember that we believe that God has made us. That marriage and sex is only a reflection of our deepest fulfillment in the exclusive, permanent, self-giving love of knowing Jesus. You see, our future and eternity, as Scripture has actually said, is a future where there's not going to be marriage but a far, far deeper satisfaction in living in the presence of Jesus, fully known, totally fulfilled. So I just want to really quickly recap what I just said. So every culture has a boundary. We're not, we're not the only ones that do that. But Christians have put a boundary there for a reason. Because what sex is to God is really important as it reflects his image of this self-giving, promised covenant between something that's different, there's, there's a distinction there. And it reflects, ultimately, Jesus is described as the bride. And the, sorry, there's the bridegroom and the church is the bride, married together for eternity. And so this is why we avoid sexual immorality, because we have a vision of sexuality that is far deeper than what our culture says it's for. And so we've established a morality of sexual practice And I should say at this point, it is a gift of God and it is to be enjoyed. Yet each of us, regardless of our marital status, whether we're married or not, regardless of our sexual orientation, all of us will will require practice in sexual restraint and control. Whoever we are. So let's read verse 4. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable. You see, the way that God forms us, he sanctifies us, is through the practising of self-restraint. Self-restraint. Just like tension in the gym forms muscle growth, right? Everyone gets that. So too, tension forms character. Tension forms character. So what does that look like? Firstly, it takes discipline. Paul says that each of you should learn. Learn. It means practice. It means repetition. It means persistence. It also means unlearning 
the lessons taught by voices in and around us that want us to give in to desires and allow those desires to rule us. Rather, we discipline our hearts. See, avoiding sexual immorality, saying no to your desires, it doesn't come easy, it doesn't come naturally. But that shouldn't surprise us. It's something that we need to practice every day. He says we need to learn this, we need to trust that God's going to grow us. So a question for you. Have you considered how your decisions are forming or deforming your character? Have you considered how your decisions are forming your character? You know, your decisions to watch or do or think, how are they shaping who you are? Which brings us secondly to restraint, that we should learn to control your own body. Self-control. It's not really a celebrated category in our culture, and yet we instinctively know that it's the path to spiritual growth and character transformation. You see, if all we ever did was give in to our desires, we wouldn't experience freedom but the destruction of ourselves. Just put a jar in front of me right now of Alan's lollies and watch my unrestrained desires destroy me. <laughs> Learning to control yourself and your desires is how we learn so we grow, so we learn to love, so we restrain our desires, we learn how to respect others, we learn how to respect ourselves. And lastly, honour, and we control our bodies in a way that is holy and honourable. Another way you could put it is asking yourself the question, can I worship God with what I'm doing? <coughs> Can I worship God with what I am doing? Does this decision reflect God's image and purposes? Or does it distort? I want to talk about something that maybe you're not expecting to hear in church, but I think God's word applies to our whole lives. So I want to talk about it. Because it is a question for young people. Thinking this way may be helpful in answering the question whether masturbation is a sin or not. You may have asked this question. You know, although a lustful heart is clearly condemned in the scriptures, there's no explicit reference to it in the Bible. So is that practice moral or immoral sexual behaviour? And my conclusion is that it's one of the desires that should be controlled and restrained. See, on one level, I, I struggle to see an argument for it that says we can worship God with it when it's outside the bounds of what God has made for our sexuality. But also given the fact that when we do orgasm, our brains release chemicals such as dopamine and oxytocin. These chemicals in your brain are what help you bond to another person. It's amazing the chemistry involved. And if what we're doing is if we habitually practice and train our brains to respond to just internal thoughts or, or, or an image on the screen, if that's what we're training our brain and releasing those chemicals over all the time, it's going to result in the long term to make us feel less fulfilled as we bond to nothing. And habitual giving in to sexual urges and releases, in other words, when this has become an ingrained habit in our lives, it's not going to help your practice of self-giving and restraint when you are in the context of a relationship with another human being, who this may come as a surprise to some, isn't available to meet all your urges all the time. Practice Sexual restraint and control is good for us. Happy to follow up in the Q&A if, if you want to 
want to make me feel even more uncomfortable. <laughs> you feel uncomfortable, I feel good. But I think God's word speaks to it. You see, the reality, guys, and I want you to hear me out. Following Jesus does mean following a path of self-denial. Just as Jesus himself gave himself up for us. A Christian sexual ethic will be different to the world's. It may sound obvious, but we can easily forget that we are in a counter-formation process. You see, as God is sanctifying us, setting us apart, making us into the image of Jesus, we are becoming distinct from the world. We look different. And our sexual ethic, too, is going to be marked by self-denial in the way of Jesus. And you see, a Christian ethic, a Christian view on anything, always always is. It's always a path of self-denial. See, whether it's our money, whether it's a question of justice, whether it's a question of, of care or, or sexuality, we all, if you're following Jesus, are following a path of humbling ourselves, of submitting our lives over to God, but with the faith that He will exalt us, in faith that He will lift us up. So we should never, ever think that someone who is same-sex attracted has to deny themselves, but a person who is heterosexual doesn't. Of course not. The path of every Christian, if you want to follow Jesus, is self-denial. Every Christian. And it will always, whatever culture you find yourself in, it's going to go against the grain. But we believe that God is not stingy. God is not stingy for what we sacrifice now in this life is nothing compared to the blessings that God is going to give us, whether this life or the life and the glory to come in the next. So as we are being sanctified, being becoming more like Jesus, Paul says we are becoming unlike the world around us. Verse 5 there. Not in passionate lust, like the pagans who do not know God. See, when there is no restraint, no restraint of knowing God and His purposes, sex is reduced to a commodity to be consumed. We dehumanise people and exchange souls for objects to be exploited for our own pleasure. It's, it's all about, it's all self-centred. It's passionate lust. And just like the Thessalonians, Paul speaking to this culture, that's what they're seeing all around them. It's what we see around us. Sex is cheap. Sex is fleeting and it's temporary. You see, instead of a picture of whole life union of heart, soul, mind, and body, what we see is sex is reduced to just a physical act. It's mammals with bonus bits. And not without consequence to others. Look at this verse 6. This is chilling. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. Distorting God's vision of sex and sexual practice will frequently result in the disadvantaging and damage of other people. Our sexuality certainly matters to our own personal formation, becoming like God, but in many ways too, this topic can be framed as a justice issue. Let me just name a few. Sexual abuse is, has profoundly damaging effects to a person. Child sex abuse, especially by the church, is an abomination for the harm that it causes. Pornography is an interesting industry notorious for abusing women. 
Porn depicts a sensationalized picture of sex, frequently violent, misogynistic, and creates unrealistic expectations of what sex is like. Not to mention the addictive quality, targeting and hooking in particular young boys and teenagers. The saturation of porn is shaping our brains and our self-worth. And these unsatiable lusts then fuels a criminal industry of human trafficking and prostitution whereby people are exploited, dehumanised and abused at an unbelievable rate. Our distortion of sex has done and continues to do untold damage to countless women and children. And the sexualization of people in the media, fashion, social media, music industry, television, is painting a picture, particularly for young women, but also for boys, where our worth is found. Adultery. I need to tell you how badly that destroys relationships and families. And casual sex is leading to more loneliness and fulfillment, not more. That's what we're seeing. You see, when we misuse sexuality, what we're doing is we're promising with our bodies and taking from someone else what we haven't paid for with our whole lives. When we take sex outside of the promise of the whole life covenant of marriage, we're not honouring that other person as God has intended. Rather, we're taking away something. I wonder if you considered your sin as harm towards others made in God's image. Which brings us back to God's intention for sexual integrity. As those made in God's image, precious to Him, any lust towards someone who isn't your spouse is violation of sacred space and an exploitation of their sexual integrity that is not yours to take. Talked about this in the first week. A violation of sacred space. Makes me sad too. (laughs) Which is why God takes it so seriously. Verse six. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. God is righteous in his judgment towards violations of sexual integrity. We must restrain our sexual desires that are outside of God's purposes because such sins are grievous to God and rightfully deserving of his punishment. But praise, praise be to God if we trust in Jesus. He says that he has taken the punishment upon himself. Again, preach that gospel to your hearts. On the cross, Jesus takes the punishment that we deserve. His mercy is available. His mercy and His grace is available. We're going to come back and, and sing that again and again. But I want to bring us back to where we started at the beginning of this message. God cares about who we are becoming. Because He's called us to something better. Now look at me, read verse 4, verse 7. For God did not call us to be impure but to live a holy life. What an absolute honour that God would speak out and invite us into a life that really matters, a life that is truly beautiful, a life that speaks the wonder and the glory of God, a life that is good and right and whole. I want you to imagine for a moment, God is calling your name. Hear your name being called out. God is calling your name. God says, I've got something better for you. I want you to become the people I've made you to be. He's calling us to live a holy life. 
You see, Jesus, who gave himself for us, he died for us that we might be righteous in God's sight. He's now invested in a work in us of transformation. That our lives would bring honour and glory to him. You see, God is not a buzzkill. He's a master builder. Building something incredible through us. So what does a holy life look like? He's calling us to it. God cares about who we're becoming. We're becoming holy like Jesus. How do we do that? How can we learn? How can we grow in holiness? I want to give you four things to consider. Number one, self-control. We talked a little bit about it before. Uh, This is something we learn and we practice. What decisions can you make to put restraints on your desires? Uh, Maybe it means putting away those shows or those books that cause you to be tempted. Maybe it means taking a break from social media. Maybe it means leaving your phone in another room and in your house overnight. What decisions can you make to put those restraints and self-control in your desires? So we grow. Remember, tension forms character. Number two there, community encouragement. Perhaps the most powerful thing that you can do to grow in holiness is to practice confession and accountability with a trusted friend. This is why I'm super passionate about our core groups. Core groups where three or four or five of us gather together, allowing others in your life to ask the hard questions. To ask you the hard questions. The grace to tell you the gospel of your forgiveness and to spur you on to make good decisions. Let me ask you this question. Does anyone else in your life know what sins you struggle with? Is there another person in your life that knows what your biggest temptations are? A community encouragement is especially true as many of us here practice singleness. And just because we're not sexually intimate in no ways means we're not intimately close with friends. Are you cultivating friendships of trust and vulnerability? Have you let people into your life? Are you available for others to grow close to you? You're making that a priority. Let's ask God, if if you don't have that, ask God and, and put yourself out there to build those friendships of trust and vulnerability. Thirdly, a growth mindset. And what I mean by this is we need to be always asking the question, how is what I am doing shaping who I am? How is what I am doing shaping who I am? Remembering, tension forms character. That as we restrain ourselves, we know that God is forming and he's shaping us. Whatever happens, we're asking God, how are you growing me? A growth mindset. And lastly, the power of grace. So I want to read to you again the last verse of our passage. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. As I read this, it sounds a bit like a warning, but I want to frame it to you as an invitation. It sounds like a warning, but hear it as an invitation. If God has asked us to restrain our sexual desires outside of our marriage, then he will always, always help us and fulfill us. And that means if we're celibate, it by no means that we live a subpar existence. God invites us 
to know Him and enjoy Him above all else. And He's promised us His Holy Spirit. He has filled us with His very presence and He's going to help us and He's going to satisfy us. And this is far better than anything that the world has to say or offer. See, if God asks us to do something, He will certainly by no means deprive us. The very God has given us His Holy Spirit. And so I want to finish this series uh, with an encouragement from the same book, from Thessalonians chapter 5. And I've printed some of it there in your handout if you'd like to a Bible. From chapter 5, verse 5, as Paul's kind of concluding this letter, he says in verse 5, You are all the children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. It's this call as God's people to wake up. We're called to something different, called to something better. Yet we're so often just asleep and we just give in to our desires, not thinking God is calling us to something better, to a holy life. So he says, wake up, be sober. And this beautiful promise in verse 7, uh, so beg your pardon, verse 9. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. I know some of you, and I've experienced this, feel the deep shame of getting this wrong. The shame of sexual sin. And again, I believe the enemy, the devil, is lying to you and saying that you are separated from God, far from Him, and that He doesn't want to know you, even though you believe in Him. You can kind of still put Jesus on the cross again for our sins. But you see, Jesus has not called you to wrath. He saved you from it if you believe in Him. If you've trusted in Jesus, he has forgiven you of your sins. He is not far from you. He's with you. And so often when we sin, we think God is far away. He is not. He is with you. He is close. Look at verse 10. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, Paul's talking about whether we're dead or alive now, we may live together with him. Whether we are dead or alive now, sometimes we think, oh yeah, we'll be alive with Jesus when we die. But he's saying now as you're awake, you're alive with him. He is with you. He died for you so he can be with you. So stop believing that he's far away. He is close. There is forgiveness. There is grace. There is salvation for your shame and your sin. doesn't mean that he doesn't want to change you. Absolutely. He is. He's invested his Holy Spirit in you to grow you. He's invested in who you are becoming. The glory of King Jesus is that he invites us into his salvation forever and ever. And that last verse there, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. This is a community project. This is not something we battle alone. We must, we must do this together. We need each other. Maybe you've been suffering alone And there's a people, a community here who wants to love you, who wants to help you, who wants to be with you and encourage you. We need to be doing this. Constantly encouraging each other. It's not a solo project. It's a community project. God is doing this. So I want to finish with a prayer. Uh, The end of the chapter, verse 23. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. 
It's a promise that I've been talking about a lot of the things we're doing. But remember, I want to say our justification, it means how we're saved, that's purely God. God does all of that. God has forgiven our sins. We don't do anything to earn God's favour. He has completely done that through Jesus. That's all God. But the process of who we are becoming, God invites us into partnership. You see, we are, we're active in this. We're, we restrain our desires. We practice self-control. And we're growing in holiness, but we're not alone. The God of peace sanctify you through and through. God is with us in this. He says, may your whole spirit, soul, and body this is all of us, not just our sexuality, every part of us, every part of us being made holy, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Let's remember and have a vision of Jesus is coming back. There's a future for us of eternal life that is on our performance. And the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. That's that promise, guys. Some of you are feeling powerless in this, but there's the promise that he will do. He will do. That's kind of the end of our series, and we're about to do a Q&A, but I want you to remember, if there's anything I want you to remember, God cares more about who you are becoming. And he's invested his very self, his Holy Spirit, in you, as he's going to make this beautiful, glorious, amazing life that looks like Jesus, reflects God's glory, becoming the people he's made us to be. Let me pray for us. The band comes up. We're going to sing in a minute. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the gift of eternal life through Jesus. And I want to pray for those who perhaps are still hesitant uh, to trust you with their lives. And maybe, maybe a Christian view of sex is what is driving them away. And I just ask, Lord, that uh, you would make it so clear to our hearts uh, that your ways are good and wonderful, and that we can trust you in this life. Lord, I pray for those who perhaps are feeling uh, ashamed over this sin, maybe past mistakes, or past hurts or abuses. Lord, I ask for your healing and your grace and your mercy to be upon us. Lord, I thank you for not for a moment have you pushed us away, but you are close. And you are faithful. You are always, always good and compassionate and merciful. So Lord, help us to see you. Help us to glorify you. And help us to be the people you want us to be. Lord, that you would grow us and shape us and change us. That our lives would bring you glory and be a great testament to the world that there is hope and forgiveness and healing to our brokenness. And there is healing to our separation from you. That there is saving from your wrath. That we no longer stand under your judgment or punishment, Lord. But there is forgiveness and grace and peace. So Lord, help us to be your people. Help us to find joy and hope. Motivate us, Lord, with a deep passion to be transformed. To resist that which is wrong and evil and to walk in the goodness of obedience and a life that is special and holy and glorious to you. Lord, give us grace when we fail and we will. And give us humility when we do walk well. Because we want our lives to honour you. So we thank you, Lord, for this in Jesus' name. Amen.